0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sami Siddiqui. Today I'm speaking to Professor Neera Vikrama about her new book, Slave in a Palanquin, Colonial Servitude and Resistance in Sri Lanka, published by Columbia University Press this year. Dr. Vikramasinghe is the chair professor of modern South Asian studies at Leiden University. Her books include Metallic Modernity, Everyday Machines in Colonial Sri Lanka, and Sri Lanka in the Modern Age A History. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, Dr. Vikramasinghe.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: That's great. Um, I really, really enjoyed uh, reading your book. So thank you so much for agreeing to the interview. Um, so our first question, uh, as you know, is always biographical. So could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up and how did you become interested in the history of Sri Lanka and the Indian Ocean?
0: Well, it's going to be a bit of a long story um, because my life has been, uh, you know, rather nomadic. Uh, in a sense, I was, I was born in Colombo during a holiday of my parents uh, by the time they had moved to, to Paris. Uh, so I studied in Paris. Uh, I was there for 21 years, and then I moved to Oxford for my DPhil. That was in the mid uh, 1980s. Uh, so this was, you know, uh, the 80s. It was a it was a period when uh, ethnic violence uh, engulfed Sri Lanka, and uh, I used to go back regularly on holiday, and I, I happened to witness also the 1983 uh, riots and the violence. So I think in a in a way, you know, as a graduate student, I was trying to make sense of this and to understand uh, how and why this, this sort of descent into, into violence. And uh, of course, at the beginning, I, I and for a long time, I wanted to be a journalist. And it's really um, after I failed the practicals, you know, to enter the Centre de Formation des Journalistes in Paris that I, I, I became a historian. Um, And eventually I ended up um, writing a a thesis on uh, ethnic politics in colonial Sri Lanka at Oxford. Um, And uh, then I moved uh, to Colombo, to Sri Lanka, and I was there for 19 years at the history department of the University of Colombo, which is a big, uh, you know, um, public university that was uh, until the end of of the war, of the civil war. And uh, ten years ago, I I, I moved to Leiden, uh, to Leiden University, to an institute for area studies, to sort of take up the chair. Now uh, there hasn't been, you know, a kind of turn to the Indian Ocean in my in my trajectory. I was always invested in in writing a history that stretched away from the nation state. So you know, the way I write, it works more like. Um, you know, I get interested in a particular question, and then when I I look for answers, uh, it's the you know the space and the time frames uh, may change. And uh, so now, for example, when I was looking, at my, my my previous book was on everyday machines in in colonial Sri Lanka, and that took me to the United States, for example, because I was looking at the Singer uh, papers, uh, and also the Buddhist world. Now, when you work on eighteenth and nineteenth century slavery. Uh, an abolition, it really calls for an Indian Ocean frame, so it was kind of inevitable. But of course, the Indian Ocean and, and the richness of the scholarship has really grown on me and uh, also liberated me uh, you know, from being cast as a South Asian historian, which is something sometimes quite, quite, quite a bit of a burden for a, for a Sri Lankan uh,
1: scholar. Fascinating. Thank you so much. And uh, I should say, in our discussions prior to, uh, you know, this uh, recording the conversation, um, you did say that this book, you know, is much more appropriate for uh, Indian Ocean Studies field rather than South Asian Studies field. So even though I'm hosting this conversation from South Asian Studies, uh, this is very much an Indian Ocean Studies uh, book, uh, along with other fields, I'm sure. Um, So I think you've kind of touched on this already, but could you tell us about the genesis of this particular book? Uh, I'm wondering if there's something you saw in the archives or uh, was it something in secondary literature or something else that inspired you to think about this topic?
0: Yeah, I think it was really an encounter in the archives and strangely, you know, a long, long time ago when I was uh, uh, researching for my, for my field, I came across the first censuses of uh, Ceylon, the early 19th century, and I was really intrigued by uh, the categories. You know, you had this Really strange categories: whites, uh, free blacks, and slaves, which is quite unusual for a South Asian um, setting. But then, of course, I was working on the 20th century and the 19th century as well, so I let it be for a while. I mean, for a long time, actually. Uh, and uh, I think in the in the in the years after, I really never came across anything you know, really detailed or interesting about uh, these censuses and, and these categories. So it was a kind of an invitation to to return to this uh, puzzle. And of course, more, more practically and more recently, I was also asked by a, a colleague that was about five years ago to co-write a, a conference paper on uh, uh, using uh, Ceylon as a case study uh, of forced migration in the Indian Ocean world. so it was like looking at you know these slaves off Ceylon and sort of uh, you know deconstructing the the term and 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 sort of trying to understand what it meant to be off Ceylon. so that really took me uh, to the archives in uh, in Colombo during the summer and uh, then I came across you know I was just looking for anything and everything that, that could could fit into this paper. And I came across this amazing document about a, an emancipated slave um, and his battle to to have his son circumcised, which is really my chapter five in, in the book. And that's, I think, the moment when I felt I, I really wanted to write a, a kind of a micro history of um,
1: enslavement. Fascinating, thank you so much. Uh, I did not know that, so that's, that's great to hear uh, how you got to the book. Um, now, I was hoping to give the listeners a taste for the writing of your book, because I really, really enjoyed it. Um, so I was wondering if you could read the words that open slave and Palanquin, um, and then tell us what your book is about and what the main argument is.
0: Okay, so it starts like this. Um, what conditions must exist for men and women to cease to accept their lives as they are. This book relates the lives of enslaved men and women who carved a moral self for themselves by resisting what they perceived as injustice. It is the story of a place and a time when ordinary individuals burst into the archive somewhat inadvertently. This book, which analyzes a series of linked events that took place in early 19th century Sri Lanka, emanates from the somewhat presumptuous belief that reading traces and hauntings will help reawaken an awareness of what happened and set off changes in a present replete with unresolved pasts. So, Yes, maybe I should uh, elaborate a little bit about what I mean by traces and and hauntings. Um, So my book uh, uncovers the traces of slavery in the history and the memory of Sri Lanka as a place that is very much connected to the Indian Ocean world. And uh, I do this by exploring moments of revolt. In the lives of enslaved people at a very particular moment, which is the the wake of uh, abolition, you know, the abolition of slavery. Now, uh, for our listeners who may not be familiar, you know, with with this history, uh, you must know that the island of of Sri Lanka was, uh, you know, has been for centuries a, a crossroads. I mean, it was known as Taprobane by the Greeks, uh, serendib, you know, this wonderful book by Ronit Ritchie on, on Serendip for, for the Arabs. So I think um, it's, um, it's really uh, with uh, when Western powers um, enter the Indian Ocean, that's in the 16th century, that, uh, you know, the power for the Portuguese and the Dutch, uh, the island became a crossroads in the slave trade as well. And then the British conquered the island in uh, the late 18th century. So you have really a layered uh, colonialism in, in, in Sri Lanka. So first the Portuguese, then the Dutch, then the British. And when the the British displaced the Dutch, they introduced uh, abolition procedures. So in in a way, slave in a palanquin is an exercise in reconstructing a past that is. Uh, you know, more or less forgotten. There's really uh, very little uh, written about uh, this period, the early 19th century. So what I'm trying to do as a historian is to present the reader with events that are invisible in mainstream historiography, including in my previous work. Um, And uh, through that and through the character of the enslaved, I, I want to show both the camouflaged violence of colonialism and also the resilience, you know, of people in the face of uh, adversity. So it's really these small protests, you know, these acts of resistance uh, that I want to uh, capture. Uh, And for that, I follow the lives of uh, a few enslaved people as they were, you know, as these lives were sort of touched and changed uh, with uh, abolition, and with the procedures that were introduced. So uh, that's actually the title of the book comes from this uh, slave who wrote the palanquin of his master in Nalur, uh, Jaffna. And uh, that event, in a sense, epitomizes you know, this moment of uh, upheaval. Now, when I refer to hauntings, uh, the question I ask is, why have these events uh, around abolition and enslaved people in Sri Lanka practically vanished from uh, collective memory. And this is uh, among both the Sinhalese, who are the majority community in the country, and the Tamils, who are the uh, largest minority. So uh, this is where perhaps my book differs uh, a little from all the excellent work that examines the, the slave trade in the Indian Ocean world, because it's explicitly written in dialogue with the present and uh, Veena does, for example, you know, writes so beautifully about what she calls the multiple durations that are folded in the now. And I think that really says, uh, you know, what I'm trying to do, in a sense, I'm trying to write about the past, the present and the future. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I ask why have these memories disappeared and whose interest really does this
1: eclipse of the slave serve? great thank you so much and uh, we're going to get to the hauntings i think uh, towards the end of uh, you know the discussion as well um and i think you know you you've already touched on this but i, I, w- I was wondering if i could ask a little bit more about the individual within uh, your book your book uh, focuses on the individual as well as the nature of the archive in the introduction you write and i quote from you while i focus on individuals i do not reduce history to the epiphenomenal but try to develop a vocabulary that evokes and registers those who lived in this historical time, end quote. Now, at various times in the book, you describe the colonial archive as hostile or fragmented. Uh, you talk about the murmurs, echoes, or faint signs of slaves appearing in the archive. Could you talk about how you understood and approached the colonial archive and how you were able to tell stories of individuals uh, in servitude?
0: Yes, I think, I think you know, my, my approach uh, to uh, historical research is really to start with a, question and, and then I create my archive from this question. This is probably my 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 French training. Uh, um, so this uh, this question takes me to various places and, and repositories, including but not only, the venerable institutions you know called the archives. Now today very few scholars except for you know the rare species of antiquarians or or, or, you know, old style orientalists would, would hold the view that the data that is found in the archives reflects in a some kind of unproblematic way, a historical truth. You know, it's, um, it's no longer necessary to convince uh, serious researchers that the, the archive is the supreme uh, technology uh, of the late 19th century colonial state. So what I do is not original in the sense, you know, I, I build on the work of numerous scholars, from subaltern studies to labor historians, social historians who wrote uh, micro histories. But for me, really, it starts uh, with a sense of puzzlement that arises from encounters uh, in the archives. So I looked, you know, when I started my research, I looked at the obvious places to garner, you know, all the knowledge that one could find on enslaved people. So I went to, I read the slave registers, court cases, testaments. Then I combed the reports of collectors, the correspondence between collectors and uh, the Colombo head office, all the time looking for traces. And uh, any document, any table that mentioned the word slave, uh, any sort of opaque, uh, sort of elusive uh, sentence, I would sort of stop there and look before and look after. And then I tried, you know, through that to reconstruct a moment you know of a person's life because it's really a slice of a life that i that i reconstruct it's not a full biographies of of these people because we don't really have enough information so i tried to to render the texture of the ordinary and i think it depends you know on a uh, on a very close attention to detail so I'm, I'm i'm always very attentive to language and and to words what is also not said for instance, you know that there are cases uh, that I look at, um, like one case of paternity uh, where uh, you know the 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 father is just not mentioned in name. Um, so 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 you know this is these are the sort of uh, uh, clues that I, I follow. So it's not really a, a question then of creating a world around, but. Uh, What I try to do is to braid all the details and just to capture a slice of a person's life, uh, which is a very ordinary life, you know, at a particular moment uh, in in history.
1: Great. Thank you so much. That's that's really helpful. Now, you describe enslavement in Ceylon as an anomaly in the sense that it wasn't similar to what happened in India or the rest of the Indian Ocean. What I found interesting was that the experiences of slavery and practices of abolition in the Cape Colony in modern-day South Africa or Trinidad in the Caribbean or Mauritius were arguably more helpful in understanding what was happening in Sri Lanka. Could you address these issues and place slavery in Ceylon in global context?
0: Yes, I think when I speak uh... Often, normally, uh, what I what I mean is that uh, Sri Lanka shared features, you know, of the forms of slavery uh, you found in India, and also in other Indian Ocean colonies, but its uh, its character comes from a very unique uh, uh, historical trajectory, and uh, this affected both the forms of slavery and the abolition process that was actually completely different from from India. Now, just to remind uh, maybe our our listeners, you know, the slave trade was abolished in 1807. Then uh, in 1833, the Slavery Abolition Act uh, provided for this award, you know, of um, 20 million pounds to the owners of slave property in all the British colonies. But Sri Lanka, St. Helena and the East India, uh, I mean, the territories under East India Company rule uh, were not uh, included in this this, this, this act. Uh, and in India, for example, slavery was delegalized in 1843. So by comparison, uh, you know, uh, the early dismantling of uh, slavery in, in, in Ceylon, which was a crown colony and not part of the East India Company, uh, started in, in 1816. So that's you know, pretty early and i found many similarities uh, in this gradual abolition procedures that were introduced in the early 19th century uh, in other crown colonies you know such as barbados or jamaica and the most uh, obvious uh, i think resemblance is this uh, registration procedure something uh, you know that was discussed at length in the parliament uh, in the british parliament and where they made these uh, very explicit connections between uh, all the different crown colonies. And I think this is really something that uh, should be explored uh, further. Now, if you go to Kew, you know, to the National Archives in, in London, you find all the slave registers uh, of the first half of the 19th century. And uh, like of the former British colonies, uh, you have the registers of uh, Cape or Mauritius and all the Caribbean colonies. And then Ceylon stands out you know, as the only uh, colony of uh, the region that we now call South Asia, where slaves were registered. So it's quite really fascinating, I think. So Ceylon, I think Sri Lanka became a kind of testing ground. And uh, this uh, the British government, of course, through uh, its representative, who was the, the governor, uh, set in motion different uh, processes to gradually abolish uh, slavery. And uh, I think uh, this period, you know, is very similar to uh, what has been referred to, you know, in the Caribbean as the period of amelioration of, of slavery, where uh, the ideas of the anti-slavery lobby in parliament and the evangelical movement, you know, threw their weight behind the forces of emancipation. So, so I think this um, Sri Lanka's experience with the abolition bears so many common features of of these uh, practices uh, that it's uh, it's very distinct, I think, from the subcontinent.
1: Thank you. And yeah, that really came through. And I, I really found the connections between uh, uh, slavery or servitude in C- uh, Ceylon uh, and all these other places really fascinating. Um, now, could you briefly explain regional forms of slavery and servitude that existed within the island? Um, you know, you you describe it as southern, northern, and in the Kandyan Kingdom, um, and the regions that you are focusing on in this book.
0: Yes. Um, so I should say also, I think perhaps before that, uh, before the arrival of the Europeans in the in, in the sixteenth century, slavery had been practiced um, in the north, central, and southern areas of the island you know, during the uh, the ancient kingdoms of anuradhapura and polonnaruwa and this was in uh, conjunction you know with uh, public institutions such as uh, buddhist temples uh, royal households and, and and guilds so so it's not something you know this whole idea of uh, slavery is not something that you know was just like brought in by um, uh, by the europeans um now in 1815 which is the year in which the british conquered the entire island you know they had actually uh, conquered the maritime provinces from 1796 but the entire island was uh, conquered uh, in 1815 uh, there were three areas really where uh, sri lanka uh, in sri lanka where uh, slavery was um, in practice uh, so the maritime provinces uh, which were formerly controlled by the portuguese and the VOC, uh, and then under British uh, East India Company rule uh, between 1796 and uh, uh, 1802. Uh, so that's really uh, the southern areas, uh, you know, so the area of Colombo, Gaul, etc., which I, I, I mentioned in, in the book. There you found uh, enslaved people who, who worked in uh, Dutch or local homes, as servants or artisans. And these these enslaved people uh, came mainly from uh, South India or the East Indies, which is uh, now Indonesia. Now, uh, in the northern uh, maritime provinces, uh, that's uh, the Jaffna Peninsula, essentially, in the north of the island, uh, enslaved uh, people were Tamils from oppressed castes and that's really a very interesting uh, phenomenon it's quite unlike what what happened in uh, in india uh, so by legally constituting them as slaves the dutch uh, you know transformed an existing form of bondage into a european form of slavery and i'll come back to that i think a little later uh, and then in the candian area so the candian areas are it's really the last Uh, place, you know, to fall under British uh, domination. So there was a Mm Candian king and a Candian kingdom in the central highlands. There are different categories of slaves were described in the Candian treaties of law. And uh, enslavement was often voluntary there. People sold themselves into slavery to settle a debt or obtain a loan. And they were then subject to the customary uh, Candian law. So my book actually uh, deals with the maritime provinces and what I call colonial servitude so I don't look at the candian uh, kingdom as such
1: great thank you that really um, clarifies how you um, how you dis- what you discuss and how uh, we can understand um Uh, slavery in in Sri Lanka at this time. Um, Now, before we start discussing chapter one, I just want to tell the listeners that you have organized your chapters around six questions. Um, So these are race and blackness, bodily violence, caste and slavery, free and unfree labor, the performance of freedom, and your conclusions question relates to how slavery haunts our present. Okay. Uh, With that out of the way, in chapter one, you... uh, begin uh, with an apocryphal story of a kaffir quote-unquote slave rebellion in colombo following the murder of a dutch fiscal in 1723 which ended up confining the quote-unquote black slaves to a ward in the city called slave island it seems it seems like almost all the details I've just laid out about the story are not entirely mm-hmm. correct. Could you talk about the story and how deconstructing it helps uh, you think through the question of uh, race and blackness as it re- relates to the history of slavery in Sri Lanka?
0: Yes. So uh, now in this, in this uh, first chapter, what I do is I try to, to unravel the story uh, behind Slave Island, which is uh, an area in central Colombo. Now, conventional wisdom is that uh, there were you know, African slaves who rebelled and then created havoc in, in Colombo, and that uh, this led them to being you know, severely suppressed. And then they were confined to a ward uh, of the city that then became known uh, as uh, Slave Island. And this is what you, you find you know, in all the guidebooks uh, still. So what I, what I show in, in this first chapter is that actually there was no slave rebellion but a murder uh, of a dutch uh, fiscal and his wife in 1723 and this was also followed uh, by the the death of the governor you know he died of shock i mean imagine you can you actually die of shock and uh, so uh, so this murder you know uh, this double murder was uh, was committed by the house slaves of uh, of the fiscal uh, whose place of origin is very clearly stated in the records, the archival records, which I, I found, and they are all from Indonesia. So, so what you find is that in popular memory, the Asian slave has been completely erased and substituted with a African slave, and this is, uh, I think, partly due to you know what has been called the tyranny of the Atlantic in um, in slavery studies. Uh, but also uh, popular culture. I think you know it's still very difficult for people to to conceive of a slave, you know, as an Indian or as an Indonesian. So I use this story and uh, its reverberations, you know, across centuries, to track the the shifts in the the meaning of social categories such as slaves, blacks, kafirs, you know, all in inverted comma. And uh, what's particularly interesting, you know, I mean, for me, is to understand the the political, ethical, and and pragmatic factors that allowed certain categories to appear or disappear. I mean, uh, so it's really the why question I ask, you know, why did categories appear and disappear, and what purpose uh, did they serve at particular uh, times? So regarding Black and Blackness... Uh, what's very clear is that you know there is a semantic phenomenon that that has happened, and I think it happens in in lots of places where you know violent colonial encounters uh, you know have shattered societies it's a it's a shift over time, you know of the the meaning of black and blackness. So what I show is that the meaning of of black sort of shrivelled and it shifts from a amorphous uh, uh, very broad uh, term of conquest in the 16th uh, and up to the 18th century to one which gradually becomes uh, endowed with a very sharp racial uh, undertone. And this went, you know, uh, along uh, with the growth of racialized ideas about uh, indigenous oriental people. Now, in Sri Lanka, it's very uh, interesting until 1838, so that's... Uh, Quite late in the in the nineteenth uh, century, the term "blacks" uh, was used for Sinhalese, Tamils, Muslims, and other non-whites. You know, it was not a, a racial term. It was actually it meant uh, you know basically people dominated people. I think you know. Um, so this was um, you know a census uh, and an administrative category, which was. Quite unlike the situation in India, where, uh, as you as you know, you know caste, which is also a, a, re- a European uh, word and a category, was uh, for a long time seen as the building
1: block of uh, communities. Great, thank you. Um, yeah, I really really enjoyed that chapter, um, and thank you for the explanation. Uh, okay, so in the next chapter. Um, you know, which looks at the question of bodily violence. Uh, You follow four enslaved individuals in the archives from Colombo to Gaul uh, in the context of abolitionist laws and policies introduced by the British. Uh, We can't go through each individual story, but I was wondering if you could talk about the story of Celestina uh, as it points to the gendered nature of slavery and violence. Um, Could you also address the issue of agency you summarize in the concluding paragraph of this chapter?
0: Yes, uh, Celestina is a yeah is a very I think uh, powerful story in a sense, uh, and uh, I I I really uh, felt strongly about you know uh, writing it in, in, into this chapter um, because her story is really uh, that of many other instead uh, women's experience of, of violence you know I, that happens in the in the workplace in the field in the bedroom. And uh, it's it's also non spectacular in a sense, you know, and uh, because uh, Celestina, the story goes like this: you know, she's charged with having uh, murdered her child uh, by the magistrate of of Calambo, because the, uh, her her child, her newborn child, is found, you know, in the uh, in the midst of uh, you know the the toilet, you know, and she has dropped the child, and the child is is uh, barely uh, alive. Um, now, what 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 I I find is that after reading the statements of the police, the uh, the proprietor, and and also Celestina's very brief uh, statements, uh, there is a very clear strategy of survival on her part. Now, when she claims that she has lost her senses, uh, you know, uh, and she makes a point quite clearly that the child was not dropped intentionally into what she calls the necessary she's in effect putting forward a, a kind of a defense. So uh, her story, you know, uh, we have only parts and pieces of it, but uh, she's committed for trial eventually before the Supreme Court for having murdered her child. and uh, But this trial actually does not take place because Celestina's name appears in a list of prisoners where uh, next to it is scribbled. Uh, these words, you know, discharged without prosecution. And this sort of makes you think that uh, something has intervened in her or someone has intervened uh, in her favor to, to discharge her. And which, which of course makes me speculate that uh, her proprietor who also worked in the court uh, sort of managed to, to save her. And that, uh, I mean, the, the assumption is that he would have been the, uh, you know, the father of this of this child uh, who, who died. So I draw on a, you know, there's very very uh, great scholarship on on South Africa, you know, people like uh, Pamela Scali and Ivet uh, Um where you know you have the same types of uh, events, and where uh, also violence is in the uneventful, in a sense, uh, and just like in in colonial Sri Lanka, women of color, you know, belong to these uh, two marginalised groups, you know, gender and race, concur, you know, to to make them invisible, so. Uh, just like, you know, many uh, examples uh, that you find in, in, in the South African scholarship of enslaved women, Celestina may not have wanted to bring a, a child into a world where he or she would not be free and uh, also surely uh, suffer bodily harm because slavery was uh, all over, you know, in the Indian Ocean world, completely antithetical to family, to womanhood or to motherhood. Um, so to come to the uh, the question uh, you asked about uh, agency and on the notion of agency, I I, I find uh, you know the work of Walter Johnson on on slavery um, particularly useful. You know he he points to the need to disentangle notions of uh, humanity, agency, and resistance. So what we encounter in these stories that uh, uh, of uh, enslaved people uh, is that their lives are conditioned by slavery, yet they are not reducible to this condition. Their humanity, their resilience, really shines through uh, all these acts of uh, self-fashioning. Um, so, uh, the other point I think on on agency, and which I make at the at the end of the the chapter is that uh, there is a tendency uh, in some scholarship of both Southeast and South Asia to highlight the the prevalence uh, of bondage as the norm in in the societies in which uh, the enslaved lived. And for this reason, uh, this scholarship ignores the, the very possibility of selfhood and individual resistance. And it also ignores the possibility that an individual could display, you know, a singular and a unique uh, form of agency uh, that that is motivated not by a dream of uh, of freedom, you know, in the liberal sense, but by a perception uh, of being unjustly or uh, unfairly treated. And all the cases I I have come across, you know, I see I see this sense of you know, um, uh, of uh, of of clay making based on a feeling of being, uh, you know, uh, unjustly treated, and and where you know this this kind of uh, they reach a kind of threshold where you know enough is enough. You know, at this point, uh, it's not no longer going to be uh, acceptable.
1: Great, thank you so much. That was I really enjoyed that uh, that chapter. Overall, but the the, the discussion on agency I thought was really helpful. Thank you. Um, Now in chapter three, uh, which carries the same title as your book, you shift your focus to the northern areas of Jaffna and Vanni uh, and focus on the question of caste and slavery. A theme that seems to run throughout this chapter is that of material culture and the symbolism of objects like the palanquin and jewelry. Um, Could you tell us about how caste intersected with slavery in northern uh, Sri Lanka? And what was the significance of the slave in the palanquin, as well as the woman wearing gold jewelry?
0: Yes, uh, Sami, I'll try. I mean, these these are very very complex uh, uh, <laughs> yes. questions, <Yeah>. you know. <laughs> Firstly, so, to discuss. What I guess, you think is yes, important. yes. Yeah, Sorry about that. <laughs>
1: but uh,
0: I'll do my best to to summarize. Um, so, uh, yeah. So in the north, you know, uh, the 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 larger percentage of the people concerned were what you call agrestic slaves of uh, uh, the Koviar, Nalavar, and Palar castes. And they worked uh, the fields or or some some of them in the houses of uh, families of the dominant Velalar caste. Uh, Now, the histories um, of these these groups are, are very closely linked to the political economy of the area, particularly the growth of the tobacco plantations under the aegis of the dutch and then later the british and uh, that's really something that someone should write about you know there's very little written about these tobacco plantations anyway um so under the dutch rule what when i mentioned this uh, previously uh, the status of these uh, subjugated castes was kind of uh, redefined as slavery by the dutch in the justinian sense you know as a complete opposite of of freedom. So these people who were actually bonded, they became uh, slaves, and this was codified uh, by the Dutch. Uh, Alicia Schricker, with whom I I have worked quite closely and who's a VOC historian, she she speaks of um, an act of bold um, ethnographic legal interpretation, and I think that really conveys this, this idea. So you have to imagine that, you know, in the early 19th century, uh, Jaffna society was the theatre of generalized caste unrest. Uh, there was, of course, you know, the existing tensions, uh, but they were also reinforced by uh, the arrival of, uh, you know, the new uh, colonial power in the land, the British, who were, uh, you know, making all kinds of very contradictory uh, statements and 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 putting forward different measures. To uh, address what they felt was a uh, the hierarchical social system among the Tamils of Jaffna. So, uh, in this chapter, I, I focus on a few cases, and uh, the the case of the slave in a palanquin is is central. So that that again, you know, it's uh it's quite a the the title comes from a court case. You know, it's it's called the case of the slave in a in a in a palanquin. And it's, uh, it happens in 1819 uh, when uh, a young man, uh, I think I later on find out that he's, I think, 18 years old, called uh, Viravan, who's described as uh, uh, belonging to the Koviar uh, caste, uh, was whipped uh, under the orders of the, the collector of Jaffna. So the collector was then the highest uh, British official in the area for... Uh, traveling in the palanquin of his master. Uh, and of course, then, you know, going against what was conceived as the prevailing law and overstepping his position and status, etc. So this leads to a, you know, a tussle between the authorities in in, uh, in Jaffna, so the collector, and the Supreme Court in, um, in Colombo that uh, believes that uh, the man should not have, being whipped because uh, that's actually the old Dutch regulation, and that um, you know uh, the collector was was not in his uh, right, you know, to do that. So I use uh, I use this case to to look into the ambivalence, you know, displayed by uh, British officials in Sri Lanka. On the one hand, to defend and uphold uh, anti-slavery and pro. Abolition policies that have been initiated in the, the metropole, and also to uh, highlight the small spaces of uh, resistance that were opening in Jaffna society uh, as a as a reaction, you know, as a as a kind of uh, it was it was kind of uh, you know encouragement, you know, there was this kind of uh, moment where. Uh, British law and Dutch law were, you know, uh, in confrontation and where and, and there was space for, for you know, uh, interpretation. And it's quite interesting, you know, when you, uh, when you read uh, Vairavan, you know, this young, young man, when he, he's asked why he traveled in the Palanquin, he said, it's very cheeky, he says, uh, he was very tired and, and he felt, he felt unwell, you know, and then his master, of course, you know, refutes saying, how could he be very tired? He jumped into the palanquin at the very beginning of the the journey, you know. So uh, uh, now I also uh, make the case, you know, that um, that is often through these battles uh, around material culture. So I, the example of the palanquin or jewelry that People challenged all the, you know, the power structures. Um, so, uh, in a way, what were the, they were doing, you know, when they travel in a palanquin or they wear gold jewelry uh, at a public feast at uh, in front of Nalur Temple, uh, is uh, claiming for themselves honors that uh, have until then been denied to them, and. Uh, i think these these members of uh, underprivileged groups uh, were aware of the reluctance of the local authorities to go against uh, velalar privilege so what's interesting is that they tried to get direct redress uh, from uh, the governor in colombo and it's really interesting that you know this group of nalavars uh, you know who uh, who are basically uh, you know making claims uh, that they are Women folk could, could wear jewelry, uh, they, uh, they appeal to the governor as tax paying subjects. So, uh, paradoxically, being taxed, even without representation, in a very oppressive colonial situation, uh, can be read as a ritual of affirmation. You know, they paid the, the tax on jewels, so therefore, uh, the governor should treat them as, uh, you know, equal subjects. So it was a way for, uh, you know, underprivileged groups to to assert their individual freedom as subjects of the state through a direct relation with its representative, which was, uh, who was uh, outside the parameters of of custom. So it's quite complicated, you know, this whole relationship between caste, caste, uh, uh, slavery and 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 colonialism it's also very fascinating the way it sometimes you know uh, goes in a completely different direction than what one uh, you know would expect
1: yeah yeah thank you and and thank you so much for doing such a great job in answering what I now realize was not a question but a set of questions so thank you so much for for, for answering that um, so in the next chapter, you look at the Chilau experiment. Um, you know, could you explain what this experiment was and uh, and how does it challenge the significance of the Cameron Colbrook reforms in Sri Lankan historiography? Um, and, uh, and what does it say about the question of free and unfree labor, um, if that's not too many questions again?
0: Yes, you are like uh, uh, some of the students who ask like three questions in, in one. <laughs> <you know? laughs> so... Uh, yeah, so the chilao—I mean, it's, it's actually a, a term I coined. You know, the the, the chilao experiment. I thought oh. it was a it sort of conveyed the uh, the, the idea of um, of something you know which is tested and, and 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 tried. So it's actually a scheme, you know, uh, according to which uh, the freedom of uh, hundreds of these koviar, Nalawar, and Palar slaves, whom I mentioned previously uh, when I was answering your your previous question uh how their freedom was actually purchased by the colonial government so it was uh, freedom in exchange for labor basically so these um, these uh, emancipated slaves signed a contract and they were sent to Chilau, which is in the south western part of the islands about 200 uh, kilometers away you know from from jaffna at least and uh, there they they had to perform hard labor on canals and other public works. Uh, so it's a scheme that began in 1820 and that went on for about uh, 10 years. And uh, what I argue is that it's a kind of a prelude to uh, better known experiments in freeing labor in the British uh, West Indian colonies. So now... Uh, I think this 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 episode is is, it's very interesting because it brings to light uh, transitions, you know, the sort of these in between uh, procedures that really complicate and and mediate uh, bondage and uh, freedom, and also it 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 indicates you know the need to to examine uh, uh, you know the longer historical duration and to to question. a kind of uh, obvious freedom-to-unfreedom uh, continuum. I think the type of uh, contract that was issued to these uh, emancipated slaves is a very good illustration, because uh, I was really lucky to to find it, I mean, to find one of them. So what you see in this contract is that unlike... Uh, Enslaved people, you know, who, who had absolutely no contractual, uh, you know, I mean, there was absolutely nothing signed between them and a proprietor. These workers were contracted. But unlike, uh, you know, plantation workers or indenture labor, uh, which, which is a system that replaced slavery, they signed a collective contract. Uh, so, so it's a kind of like a in between system that was that uh, one can uh, what one can see here, and there the, are the also like some some really fascinating details. These uh, these uh, emancipated slaves, you know, who went to work in Chilau could also uh, provide their their labor to to free a, a relative. So you have evidence of cases of young men, you know, uh, working in Chilau for. Two years or three years, uh, to free a parent or to free a grandmother, you know, and all this is uh, documented and it's amazing uh, material. Now, regarding your uh, your question about the the cameron reforms, uh, yes, I think you know the accepted narrative uh, of the the coming of modernity in Sri Lanka is is that it. Uh, unfolded as a natural consequence of the Colbrook Cameron reforms in 1833. And uh, these reforms are seen as the key moment in uh, Sri Lanka's trajectory. And they're believed to have uh, put a sudden end to the uh, old regime. And this is, uh, I mean, something that uh, you know, historians uh, of old, you know, from uh, you know the historians who wrote in the 1950s up to David Scott, for example, you know, uh, have uh, argued, uh, uh, you know, uh, quite forcefully. So, uh, so I think, uh, you know, this very sharp break also can be challenged if you look at the early decades of the of, of British rule in in some detail, you know, and if you move away from from the actual, uh, you know, report, the coldbrook Cameron report, and you actually look at what was happening. Uh, you see that, uh, that alongside, you know, this kind of mute force, you know, physical mute force that, you, that, is, that comes with, you know, sovereign power, uh, there are very clear instances of, you know, what some scholars would call governmentality. Uh, in all these procedures, you know, informing the gradual abolition of slavery. There was this attempt to transform the way people behave, you know. Uh, and this was decades before the colebrooke uh, Cameron reforms.
1: Great. Thank you. And uh, I promise to be less greedy uh, with the final few questions. <laughs> okay. So in Chapter 5, we, uh, you know, you go back to Colombo uh, and uh, we hear from Rawothan, um, from the Moore community asking permission for his son to get circumcised um, what was the significance of this case and why do you see his actions uh, through the prism of performance
0: yes this is also this is actually the first um, uh, case i found in the archive so i'm i'm really uh, uh, attached to it in a certain way um so it's a it's a very long expose you know like 40 50 pages of uh, of the revolt of of this um, the son of an emancipated slave in Colombo in 1826 uh and so this man ravudan he uh, he decides you know he files a, a case uh in the provincial court against eight members of the the moor community he writes petitions he complains and then there is this this kind of uh, war of reports you know uh, the, to to address this case which makes you also think that the the in some way the colonial uh, government was, was quite idle i mean if they they were spent so much time on this one single case you know it's yeah. it's quite fascinating so uh, so why is the why is it an issue it's because Ravudan, you know is described of slave extraction and therefore, he's not, in the view of the Mo community, eligible to perform all the honorary ceremonies, you know, that what they call respectable Moors are entitled to perform. So, uh, so why I read it, you know, in terms of a, a performance is uh, uh, rather than, you know, uh, you know, whose mother was em- emancipated, uh, is a free subject in colonial Sri Lanka. Uh, he's a subject of uh, the colonial state, but he's still uh, you know, free. But then he he comes uh, to the realization that his freedom is actually an illusion if he's not actually recognized as free by his community, who are the moors you know, of the island, and if he's not recognized also as equal by the colonial authority, so uh, so it's this uh, uh, inherent injustice you know of being free but unable to act as a as a free man uh that uh, you know tr- triggers his uh, long battle it lasts about two and a half years so i i read his acts and his words you know the words that are written of course and that you know of course mediated and uh because he uh, he had to uh, write in English, so if all mm-hmm. his petitions are written in English. Um, so, uh, yeah, so his 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 words, his acts, his um, uh, his application, you know, for the ceremony of circumcision, uh, his petition writing, continuous petition writing, his appeal to the law. Uh, these are. Uh, read as a performance in freedom that aim at uh, claiming uh, equality. So what I argue is that from being um, an object you know of regulation and law, uh, when he uh, asserts his freedom in court and when he acts on his anger, rather than becomes a kind of a, a wielder of power. So it's through this breaking and entering in play that he challenges the denial of equality by his community. So it's not so much that the colonial state and the legal system uh, are perceived as potential instruments of justice, but rather that they... They are a stage, you know, upon which claims for uh, juridical and, and religious equality are made in a public arena. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's uh, so I read really his acts as a performance in selfhood, you know, uh, and I don't really know uh, whether he succeeded or not because I. But what is important rather is that he was able to, you know, uh, perform his uh, his uh, his freedom.
1: Great, thank you. Yeah, and that's, that's a really fascinating chapter uh, as well. Um, so now uh, getting to the conclusion, I was wondering if you could um, read the opening lines of your concluding chapter uh, and tell us how the history of slavery has been effaced and yet continues to haunt the uh, contemporary Sri Lanka.
0: This final chapter evokes the eclipse of the slave as a figure of history and her effacement from popular memory. I follow an intuitive path of inquiry that interlaces the past and the present and braids archival traces with their echoes. Memories as I conceive them and their absence are constructions of and for the present rather than stored truths. And the history I would like to write is made of the relation between the present and the past. The eclipse of slavery in Sinhalese and Tamil societies is not complete, however, disturbed as it is by ghosts of different sorts. So I, I actually spoke about this a little bit uh, in the first chapter as well. Okay. Uh, the the haunting I mentioned, you know, it, it functions in a number of ways. Uh, on the one hand, it's a it's a repressed memory. You know, I use the figure of the say slave as a prism. Uh, to summon the ghosts, as it were, you know. Uh, so we see uh, in Sri Lanka uh, a clear case of what Paul Ricoeur uh, calls a, the second type of amnesia. You know what he calls the oubli de reserve, where forgetting is a is a reserve or a resource. You know, and uh, I, I alluded this also to this also in the in the first. Uh, a chapter of the book uh, when I referred to the blackening of the slave, you know, and the disappearance of the of the Asian slave uh, from the narrative, uh, because the issue you see <clears throat> is that slavery uh, poses very troubling questions about race. Uh, if one is to take race to signify a you know a flexible, ambiguous, uh, and social rather than a biological construct. Uh, Accepting you know the, the reality of, of slave ancestry in Sri Lankan society would mean accepting a history of migration and also that communities are mixed, are impure. And this is something which is completely adverse and uh, anathema in a country where uh, purity and authenticity are considered the highest value. So it's much easier. To refuse to remember, or to, to lay uh, over the past, you know, this very protective layer, which is made of uh, Afro-Sri Lankans or plantation coolies, because their lives, you know, are witnessed; uh, they are visible as communities, and this uh, allows, uh, you know, to turn away from the possibility of other paths, which are paths of migration, paths of mixing pass of, uh, you know, ambivalence, etc. So you have, uh, in effect, a, a refusal to uh, memorialize the enslaved because this enslaved is the embodiment of, you know, this Creole pass. And I use, the, you know, the term Creole, uh, you know, in the sense of glissant uh, rather than, uh, you know, uh, uh, so really a, a, a what in sort of adapting you know the the idea of uh, of um, of creolization uh, mm-hmm. um now uh, the other problem is that slavery you know and enslavement uh, rather remains and continues to haunt us because it's constantly being unearthed you know academics uh, such as myself but also uh, colleagues working on uh, you know the voc sources etc Ekama or Shrika, etc. I mean, constantly refer to it in their work, so it's it's there. It's uh it's uh it's 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 present, although it's not always uh, acknowledged. Then there are, there are also novels, you know, uh, on the on by by uh, Tamil uh, writers. I mention uh, K. Daniels' uh, wonderful novel uh, called Mirage, you know, which describes the life. Uh, and the work performed by uh, former uh, chattel slaves and Nalavar family as bonded labor. And uh, where it ends, you know, uh, quite tragically, where uh, freedom and salvation uh, finally end up only being a mirage for them. So the history of slavery, I think, signals... uh, I mean, what I find it's important is that it signals the, the fallacy of of um, identities as they are conceived in Sri Lanka you know by the majority as well as the minorities you know they're sort of mirror images uh, and i find very useful uh, michael rothberg's notion of uh, implicated subjects uh you know implicated subjects uh, uh is a term he uses to to describe people who inherit regimes of domination without actually Originating or controlling such regimes, mm-hmm. so so the this last chapter is in a sense a, a call, you know, to to all implicated subjects who are uh, sustaining a myth, you know, uh, mm-hmm. with uh, terrible consequences when you think of it, and uh, and also who are denying a, a different uh, or the possibility of different pasts. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, And yeah, I really genuinely, uh, you know, really love this book and um, would recommend it to to anybody. Um, And I hope, uh, and I'm sure people will definitely read the book. Um, So I've taken so much of your time. uh, But before I let you leave, could you tell us about what you're working on next?
0: I'm actually taking a long rest, but um, I can tell you. <laughs> well, the last year, you know, has been uh, such a strange one uh, for mm-hmm. for me, and also for I think for everyone. Uh, I can imagine uh, who are separated from, uh, you know, the families and friends, and also their archive in many ways. So, uh, even in normal circumstances, I tend to take a, a you know a break uh, between larger projects. So, at present, I'm. I'm, I'm working on smaller research assignments, you know, book chapters and that sort of thing. But I have an idea. I mean, which is directly connected uh, to to this book, and it's something I'm I'm exploring. Uh, it's uh, it's really thinking about uh, uh, belonging and the notion of uh, forgetting. You know, the the importance of forget, forgetting. You know, in uh, in uh, I mean, you always think of you know memory studies uh uh you know have have a have a, a focus on on remembering and 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 so i want to see you know how forgetting also uh functions and i think the the um, uh slave descent is is uh, is an area that uh, i would like to perhaps pursue in the future
1: great that sounds that sounds really interesting and obviously the the question of forgetting is Definitely in this book as well, so there's a clear connection. Um, thank you so much for agreeing to do the interview, and uh, um, good luck with your future projects.
0: Well, thank you very much for for having me. It was a pleasure. <laughs>